Welcome to Global River Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org forward slash resources. What you're seeing today is, is what I call growing pains. And you've seen me on the stage before. You've heard me teach. You've heard me as I'm learning how to preach. But what's really hard for me is to lead. Because in the past, when I've been a leader, I've been burned. And I've said, I never want to do that again. But God's beginning to reveal to me that I've had a fear of leadership. And I would meet with Arlene, and she'd say, you're a leader. And I'd be like, no, no, no. (laughs) I don't want to lead. Let me speak, but I don't want to lead. But God is removing that fear of leadership. And what you're seeing today is me growing and developing muscles right in front of you. And I'm so thankful for the grace of this house to be able to fail. There's a grace to try and to fail, but to learn, but to learn through the process. And I'm just thankful for Pastor Tom that he's, he's not afraid. He's not afraid to let people grow, to, to bring people under and to give them platforms and the, let them learn just as someone let, he, let him learn. So that's what you're seeing up here. But today we're going to talk about Jesus and his example of humility. Now, why do we need to talk about that? Well, first of all, I want you to look around the room and see if there's anyone in this room that you've ever had a disagreement with. Maybe you've disagreed on how to interpret a Bible verse, once saved, always saved. Maybe you've had a disagreement over whether the children should stay in worship or whether they should go to children's church. Maybe you've had a disagreement over where you might eat lunch today. Anywhere that you have humans, you're going to have disagreements, even in the body of Christ. And I confess there are people in my 11 years here that I've disagreed with, and I've had to work things out with them. But even in the ancient church, And at Philippi, people had disagreements. So if you'll open up your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. And while you're going there, I'll give you a little bit of background. In Philippians 4, this is always brought up. There were a couple women who couldn't get along. There were a couple women who couldn't get along. And and in Philippians 4, 2, Paul urges those women to get along. And when you look at the book of Philippians as a whole, what you'll see is this church was struggling with pride. They were struggling with self-centeredness. They were struggling with selfishness. And each one of us today, to some extent, even as we sit here, we are struggling with pride We are struggling with self-centeredness. We are struggling with selfishness. Why? Well, if you pinch yourself and feel pain, that means you're a human. From the very beginning, humans, when sin entered the world, we have struggled with pride and self-centeredness and selfishness. And, And I'll joke with Brian. I'll say, honey, I'm really humble. I've got a lot of humility. And he'll say, you're not using it today. You're not using it today. So if, you think, if, I, if I said, raise your hand if you're humble, if any of you raised your hand, mm, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. But we can just honestly say, at some point this week, at some point today, we struggle with those things. If you want the best piece of Miss Addie's fried chicken, might be a little bit of selfishness. So we're human, and the church at Philippi was the same. And we're going to start with um, Philippians, we're going to be in Philippians 2, and we're going to look at Philippians 2, 2. And Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So there are four things that he says, have one mind. One love, one spirit, one purpose. That's what he's telling them. He's telling them to walk in unity, and this is how. 
And even though sometimes we may disagree on how to interpret a verse, we can still walk in unity. And he's going to tell them, he's going to tell them how. It gets a little harder. And this should be on your handout. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also the interest of others. So he's telling them, don't be selfish. Be humble. Consider one another as more important than yourself. And that's hard stuff. That's hard for humans to do. But he's going to give us some examples And if we had time to study the whole chapter, you would see that he gives four examples of how to walk in unity and with humility. He starts off with Jesus, and that's who we're going to talk about today. And then he talks about himself. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, it's for you. And then he gives the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, how they have laid down their lives for the gospel. But we're going to focus in on Jesus today. So Philippians 2, 5 through 8 is where we're going to focus. And this is what I learned in seminary is called the Christ hymn. This is the Christ hymn. So there's a little nugget you can take home today. So I'm going to read it all together and then we're going to go through it phrase by phrase. And it's funny, I am preaching this because about six months ago I had a dream. And in the dream, Pastor Tom was supposed to preach, and the other pastors were saying, who's going to preach? Who's going to preach? And I was studying this passage for um, a seminary class, and I just said, I will. And so that's why I am sharing this, because God gave it to me in a dream, and I don't have a lot of prophetic dreams. But I know this is a message for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He doesn't stop there. Even death on a cross. So we're going to look at this, what's called line upon line, precept upon precept. So the first part is he said, Jesus existed in the form of God. We know from John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I want you to know today that Jesus is God. And I know that is hard for us to grasp. I'm going to walk down off the stage because it, This is where I'm comfortable and it's not scary, but I'm going to push myself. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, I'm walking away from my notes. (laughs) Jesus is God. Now, we know there's the Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is God. And if anybody tries to tell you different, they are not speaking the truth. Jehovah's Witnesses say, Jesus is not God. Christian Science Jesus is not God. The Mormons, Jesus is not God. And I posted something on this because it's hard for our minds to imagine one God in three parts. But I posted something about this on Facebook, how I was grappling, just trying to understand. And there was a lady that took offense at what I said, and she started commenting, Jesus is not God. He's the only begotten God which is scriptural, and she said, someone taught me this, and she was posting all these YouTube links. And if you remember Ginger Beesey that used to attend here, she's bold. She's bold on Facebook. She'll speak the truth, and so she was saying this and trying to speak the truth. 
And every time I would write a scripture that said Jesus was God, she couldn't answer it. All she could say is this YouTube video. And this went on and on. And I don't do controversial things. I want everybody to like me. But my stepmother posted. And when she attacked my stepmother, I was like, you don't mess with that woman. That woman is an angel in my mind. She has cared for my family, for my father. You don't mess with her. And so I had to go on to Messenger and just say, leave my stepmom out of this. Don't mess with her. It got ugly because people don't want to believe that Jesus is God. But Jesus is God. Hebrews 1, 3 says Jesus was the exact representation of, the, of his nature. And that word representation, it means like there was a stamp. There was an imprint. That's God. And then Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God. So that's where we begin with this Christ hymn is Jesus is God. He existed in the form of God. He was equal to God, but he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it, if I can find it in my stack of preparedness papers. There it is. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't cling to it. And when you look up that word grasped in the Greek, it means snatched. Jesus didn't want to snatch or hold on to that equality with God. It means to claim for yourself, to seize. But it said he emptied himself. In my New American Standard Bible, there's a footnote, and it says he laid aside his privileges. He was God. He said, I'm not going to be the same as God. I don't need to cling to being God. I'm going to lay aside every privilege of being God. So let's look at what he laid aside. So I want you to know that Jesus was a divine being. But he laid aside some of his divine attributes to become a stinking man, to become a man, to become a man, God, and he became a man. Would you do that? Uh-uh, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I, I want to stay in heaven. Why? What did he have in heaven? <laughs> in heaven, he was omniscient. That means he knew everything. When he was on earth, he didn't know how, how it was going to all turn out. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He didn't know how it was going to all turn out. In heaven, he was omnipotent. He had all the power. But on earth, he only had the power Holy Spirit gave him to do miracles and to cast out demons, to turn water into wine, to raise Lazarus from the get dead. He only had what Holy Spirit gave him. In heaven, he was omnipresent. He could be everywhere with everybody. I don't understand that. There's something with quantum physics, but that's too heavy for my brain. But on earth, he couldn't do that. Now, his resurrected body, he could walk through walls. But he was just a human. He couldn't be everywhere, just like we can't be everywhere. In heaven, Jesus had freedom. He could come and go. He could do what he wanted. But on the earth, he could only go certain places because the Pharisees were trying to kill him. Sometimes he had to stay and wait before he would go up to the festivals because he knew they were trying to kill him. In heaven, now this is something we don't think about. But when you think about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, I want you to think about them as being together because they're the Trinity. They are three distinct persons, but they're the Trinity. They have relationship with one another. They have a friendship with one another. They have fellowship with one another. There's an intimate relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, they have to be because they're one. They're in unity. And when Jesus left heaven, he had to leave his daddy. 
He had to leave his daddy. He had to leave the father. He had to leave the Holy Spirit. He had to leave that fellowship. He left approval. In heaven, he was worshiped. On earth, he was despised and rejected. He was rejected. In heaven, he had a beautiful home. On the earth, he said he had nowhere to lay his head. He left that all. This is what Jesus became. He had everything, but he came to earth with empty hands. Empty hands. He had all the divine privileges, but he came to earth like this with empty hands. Empty hands. He didn't snatch or seize or rob or cling to anything. Empty-handed. Verse 7 says, he took the form of a bondservant. Now, that's not a term that we use in our everyday language, so let me tell you what it means. According to the Strong's Concordance, a bondservant is a slave, okay? So where it says he took the form of a bondservant, it means he became a slave. God became a slave. He laid aside his divinity and his freedom to become a slave to deliver us. There's, there's a point here, to deliver us from slavery. The concordance says this bondservant is a slave. His will is altogether consumed by the will of another. Jesus' will was altogether consumed by the will of the Father. He only went where the Father said go. He only said what the Father said say. He only did what the Father said do. He was a slave to the Father. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think about it. God, empty-handed, became a slave. He became a slave. Verse 7 says, being made in the likeness of men. So where did Jesus come into the world? Where was he? In Bethlehem. What was, where was he? He was born in a manger. He was born in a stable. God, God was born in a messy, stinky stable with animals. He's lived in this dirty world. He left heaven being made in the likeness of men, and that means he had to deal with things that we deal with. He knew pain. He knew fear. He knew grief. Every emotion that we experience, he's experienced. He became a man. Men were made from dust and earth. Amen. Men were made from dust and earth and, earth and breath. And that's what Jesus became. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, think about him, in heaven he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He became poor poor so that you through his poverty might become rich there's a point to all these things that he did we're going to get there verse 8 continues this it says being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross this word humble it means to lower. Anytime you hear the word humble, it means to be made low, to depress, to be unassuming, to not be haughty. We're going to look at that more fully in a couple minutes. It says he became obedient. We know Jesus said in John 5:30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He became obedient. 
I'll be honest, I don't like people telling me what to do. Right, Brian? I do not like to be told what to do because sometimes it makes me feel like I'm being treated like a child. And I do not like to be treated like a child. I'm like, I can do it on my own. I'll do it. (laughs) I'll do it. I don't need your help. But usually I do. But can you imagine someone choosing to put their, their selves in the place of being obedient to another? Obedient. He became obedient to the point of death. So it doesn't stop there. It doesn't say he became obedient to the point of death. Because if it stopped there, it would not have the same meaning as the next phrase. He didn't just die, but he died on a cross. He didn't just die, but he died on a cross. And we're going to look at what that entailed. I don't need to tell you that death on a cross was painful. The way they designed crucifixion, it was so that it would have the most pain for the longest time. They wanted it to be prolonged so that the person being crucified would be in agony. It took days. I have some quotes for you And I I wrote out the quotes because I can't say it any better than these people can. Besides pain, there was humiliation. And this is on your handout. It's from the Holman Commentary. It says, becoming a man was humbling. Taking the nature of a servant, which we've talked about, was even more humbling. Christ went still further. He humbled himself to the extent of being willing to die like a common criminal. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. God, empty-handed, a man, a slave, obedient, death. But he died like a common criminal. He didn't just die, but on a cross like a criminal. He hated sin, but he died in the manner of a sinner. It says, crucifixion was the most degrading kind of execution that could be inflicted on a man. It was the form of capital punishment the Romans employed for foreigners and slaves. And from the research I did, if you were a Roman citizen, you wouldn't be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. Foreigners and slaves. It was painful. It was humiliating. A website that I found, ronrollheiser.com, said it was designed to humiliate the person. The person was stripped naked before being hung on a cross. Okay, I just want you to sit with that for a minute. Because in our depictions of Jesus on the cross, that's not how it's depicted. From the time when sin entered the world, nakedness meant shame. You remember God in the Garden of Eden provided a covering for Adam and Eve because they were naked and ashamed. How do you think Jesus felt on the cross? How would you feel? Ashamed. Humiliated. And this was why it was such a blow to his disciples. Because this is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one prophesied in Isaiah and Psalms. The one that was going to deliver them from Roman tyranny. And here he is on a cross. They were devastated. He experienced pain. He experienced humiliation. But we don't often think about the rejection that he experienced. When you read the different, uh, different Gospels, John 18 has Peter denying Jesus three times. You know, Peter was in that close circle. Peter, James, and John, the close circle. Did I get that right? 
Peter, James, and John. <laughs> I'm trusting Holy Spirit because my brain doesn't seem to retain all the references like Pastor Tom's does. <laughs> trusting them. Thank you for helping me. <laughs> but this was a close friend. I have some close friends. My close friend, Laurie, raise your hand so I can show you off, drove in from Raleigh today, and Laurie was there when I got saved. It was because of her invite, knocking on my dorm room door, inviting me to a Bible study that I found Jesus right there in a group of women. She is a close friend. She knew me before Jesus, and she knows me now, and she still likes me, right, Laurie? <laughs> but I can't imagine if she rejected me, if she left me, if she denied me. I have other close friends here. Mark 1450, after Jesus was taken prisoner, it said, and they all left him and fled. Every last one of them. They, I mean, they had spent three years with Jesus. They had, they had been there when the water was turned into wine and the miracles of the bread and the fish, feeding 5,000 and feeding 4,000. They saw Lazarus being raised from the dead. They all left him and fled. Imagine how he felt on the cross. There were some women there supporting him, but they all left him and fled. He was rejected. This is on your handout. It's from a book called The Crucified God. To suffer and be rejected are not identical. Suffering can be celebrated and admired. It can arouse compassion, but to be rejected takes away the dignity from suffering and makes it dishonorable suffering. To suffer and be rejected signify the cross. To die on the cross means to suffer and to die as one who is an outcast and rejected. God, empty-handed, becomes a slave, becomes a man, becomes obedient, dies on a cross, alone. He didn't have all his friends there to give him moral support and encouragement. He, there were a bunch of mockers there. There were Pharisees there. There were soldiers dividing up his clothing. There weren't a lot of supporters there. Rejected. Jesus became sin and a curse on the cross. He became. Now let's look at these scriptures because it's, it's hard to understand. 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it starts with he. It's talking about God. He made him who knew no sin to be. Say that aloud. To be. To be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin on that cross. He hated sin. God hates sin. God is holy and pure, righteous. He became our sin. He also became a curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become, say become, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God, empty-handed, became a man, a slave, obedient to death on a cross. Pain, humiliation, rejection. And then he had to become, had to embody, had to feel, had to experience the opposite of who he was. He was holy. He was blessed. He became sin and a curse. Possibly the worst of all of this was while he was on that cross, he felt forsaken and abandoned. Matthew 27, 46 says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So remember I talked about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having an intimate relationship. They were together in the beginning. They were together at creation. They were together in heaven. And Jesus leaves. And even on the earth, he had fellowship with the Father through prayer. He listened to the Father. But on the curse, on the cross, the Father was not there. He was alone. He was abandoned. He was forsaken. Why? In the words of Billy Graham, he says, These words point to the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, all of our sins, all of our sins, all of your sins, all of my sins were transferred to Jesus. Jesus was without sin, for he was God in human flesh. But as he died, all of our sins were placed on him. And he became the final and complete sacrifice for sins. In the book of Hebrews, it says the high priest had to sacrifice over and 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 over again. But the blood of animals couldn't take away sin. It took Jesus' blood, one sacrifice, for all sin, for all time. And Billy Graham says, in that moment, Jesus was banished from the presence of God. For sin cannot exist in God's presence. His cross speaks of this truth. Jesus endured the separation from God that you and I deserve. He suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He experienced pain, humiliation, rejection, becoming sin and a curse, and abandonment. Serious talking to me. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. This chapter is a, a messianic chapter. It's referring to Jesus, and it's called, it's one of the servant songs that's found in Isaiah And I'm going to skip just a few verses, but we're going to start with verse 2. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, many uh, translations say stripes, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Verse 12 says, Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressions, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 
So I want you today to consider the lengths. If I were taller, I would reach up higher. But Jesus started in heaven as God. But he didn't hang on to what it was like to be God. But he came empty-handed. More than that, he became a man. More than that, he became a slave. More than that, he became obedient. More than that, he humbled himself. More than that, he died. More than that, it was death on a cross. He did all of that. Why? It's because he loves you. Because he loves you. That's hard for my mind to fathom. Because when I came to know Jesus, I was not worthy of his love. And I knew it. I was sinful. I was doing my own thing, doing it my own way, seeking my own pleasure, and bulldozing a lot of people in the process. And that's what most people do. They're selfish, self-centered, prideful, hurt, broken. That's what we do. Sometimes we don't know any better until the truth, Brian's picture was of a lighthouse, until the light, the truth, breaks in. And we understand who God is and who we are and what we have to do to have a relationship with him. But I want you today to just let your mind understand the lengths Jesus went through, where he started and where he ended up because he loves you God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son whoever believes in him won't perish won't die because of their sin won't be separated from God eternally because of their sin but they'll have everlasting life with God and Jesus and Holy Spirit in heaven that's the gospel that's the gospel that's what God did for you. Why? Because he loves you. After the separation in the Garden of Eden, God worked so hard to bring us back into right relationship with him. In the end, he had to send his own son to pay for our sin so that we can have friendship with God. God, listen, God's my friend. He's my friend. Jesus is my friend. Holy Spirit's helping me stand up today. He's my friend. And he can be your friend too. Because Jesus paid the price for your sin. You don't have to pay it. You can accept Jesus as your Savior. And you can walk in peace. You don't have to be ashamed for what you've done. You don't have to walk in shame. I spent many years coming out of the shame of my past behavior. And now I can stand before God pure and holy. So what was the outcome of all of this? Jesus wasn't just left in the grave. We know that he was raised from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. He appeared to a bunch more people. He ascended into heaven. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, which are the final verses in this Christ hymn, says, for this reason also, it's talking about what Jesus did, for this reason, because Jesus did all of these things, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus was honored and glorified for his sacrifice. That's the end of the Christ hymn. In the end, Jesus is going to come back for his people. And he's going to establish his kingdom. His kingdom is already here. But there's a future fulfillment that's coming, a consummation. Jesus will establish his kingdom on the earth, and every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. So we need to practice bowing. We need to be sure we're ready 
and in the right position. And that's why Paul starts out in verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he explains that attitude, humility, obedience, being a slave to others, serving being willing to go to great lengths, leave, living a sacrificial life. We're to have the same attitude. So I want to talk a little bit about humility. I'm just going to tell you that's a hard one for me. That is a hard one for me because I'm always right. Right, Brian? I'm always right. The, the other night... I proved my rightness. We were leaving. I always tell Brian how to drive. If you've ever seen Tim Hawkins' videos, I'm the little helper in the car. Like, he's got a PhD, but I have to help him drive. And he was trying to figure out which way to go, and I said, you need to go this way. And he went that way, and I just kept my mouth shut. And then he figured out why he shouldn't have gone that way, and that I was right. Right, honey? Because I'm always right. I mean, I know how to get around town and how to avoid making the left turns and being at, stop, you know, four-way stop signs. Oh, Lord Jesus, I struggle with pride. Help me. Anybody else willing to admit that you struggle with pride? All of our hands should go up. All of our hands. Because we think we know how to do things the right way. If they would just listen to me, then da-da-da-da-da. We think we're smarter than other people. We think we know how to do it. So let's look at humility because we need it. There are very few examples in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am blank. And he uses an adjective to describe what he's like. Now, we know in the book of John, there's the seven I am statements. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where he describes his personality. And he does that in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You ready? For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Very few times. I think the other time, the third time in the, in the Gospels is when um, someone was asking him to heal, heal them. I can't remember which one it was. But he says, I am willing I am willing. Gentle, humble, willing. So let's look at gentle first. This is on your handout. I am gentle and humble. Gentle basically means friendly. I love that. Jesus says I'm friendly. And do you know what that means? Jesus says if you've seen me, you've seen God. That means God is friendly. He's not the stern person at the cash register checking you out that doesn't give a flip about you. He's warm. He's kind. He smiles. He's gentle. That's Jesus. He says, I'm gentle. For me, I'll just be honest, there are some people that intimidate me. There are people that intimidate me. And I'm so thankful that the people that I've worked with today in doing this service with um, Jason and Daniel and Christy, they don't scare me. They don't scare me, which is a good thing because some people intimidate me. Jesus, now there are times Jesus would be intimidating, but it says he's friendly. He's friendly. He's gentle. The coming king, and he says, I'm gentle. But what's more, he says, he was humble. He's low. He's low. In the Greek culture, in the Hellenistic world that Jesus lived in, in the Roman Empire, this word humble had the sense of being low-lying. And in terms of social standing, it meant low or poor, little influence, powerless, 
unimportant. 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 It's rooted in the physical mean, meaning of being low, especially in comparison of that which is above or higher. So Jesus made himself low. And in that culture, in the Greek world, I can't remember where I got this quote, but in the Greek world with its anthropocentric, which means human-centered view of man, lowliness is looked on as shameful. He assumed a position that was shameful. He washed feet. Shameful. It was looked on as a position to be avoided and overcome. Something that people wanted to avoid, Jesus became. He assumed that position of being shameful. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor. He made himself low. I am gentle. I am humble. I am friendly. I am low. But he was God. He became humble. He became poor for our sakes. He humbled himself to the point of death. Now here's the hard part. He said, this is Jesus saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. You know what that means? Empty-handed. Not holding on to anything. Not holding on to anything. Deny himself. Take up his own cross to carry and follow me. If we want to be disciples not just saved people, but disciples. There's a difference between being saved and being a disciple. You can be saved and not be a disciple. But Jesus is looking for disciples. And he says, if you want to follow him, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. That's what a disciple means. It's a learner. In the Great Commission, he says, teach all. Teach, teach them everything I've commanded you. Make disciples. Jesus doesn't just want converts. He wants disciples. That's another sermon. I'm going to save that one. <laughs> That's another one. Mm. So I'm going to give you some steps for becoming humble and gentle like Jesus. And then we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. So again, th this stuff is hard for me. The first step is to be intentional. Be intentional. There's a podcaster that I like. He's also an author and a pastor. His name is Carrie Newhoff. I always send Pastor Tom his podcast. N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F. And there's a book he had called Didn't See It Coming. I sent that one to my friend Carrie. He says, humility stays only if you invite it. Even more than that, you have to submit to it, crave it, hone it, develop it, Nurture it. He says, otherwise it leaves and pride comes back the minute you get off your knees. We have to intentionally invite and pursue humility. Now, that's a scary thing to do. I'll tell you a little story. We had, we had a niece stay with us for a month in July, and I had to take her home at the end of the month. And the morning that we were driving back to Charlotte, I prayed, and this is my prayer, God, keep me humble so that you can use me. That's my constant prayer, because if I stay humble, God can use me. If I'm prideful, I'm out. I'm useless. So that morning, I knew what I was doing, and I knew it was dangerous, and I said, God, humble me. Woo-wee. Two hours later, I got my answer. Because when I pack, really when I do anything, I have a spreadsheet. Like I've got a spreadsheet. Actually, it's probably in here. I have a spreadsheet to tell me everything I'm supposed to do today. Somewhere in here. Sunday, right here. It tells me to get my water, get my clock, get my computer, get my sermon, get my iPad, which is over there, get my earrings, because you can't wear dangly earrings. Adjust the air conditioning. It says Christy will open the service, pat the announcements. Tells me my friend Laurie is here. 
And then it tells me everything to do this afternoon. So when I pack, I have a spreadsheet that's got everything I'm supposed to take, everything. Well, that day, we stopped in Whiteville to get some coffee and a milkshake. And when I walked back to the car, I looked in the back seat, and it was empty. My suitcase was at home. So needless to say, my overnight trip turned into a day trip. And I drove to Charlotte and back in the same day. Me, who is so organized and together and with it, left my suitcase. So now the spreadsheet says, suitcase. (laughs) I prayed for humility and I got it. And the minute I saw the suitcase wasn't there, I knew what God had done. I knew it was the answer. It was to knock me down a few levels. I'm not as with it as I think I am or as you think I am. So pray for humility, but watch out. The second one, the second step is to be thankful. I want you to realize that any gift that you have comes from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So whether you're a hairstylist or a cook or a painter or a gifted dancer, a gifted preacher, a gifted judge, a gifted fried chicken maker, a gifted prophetic artist, a gifted magazine editor, whatever gift you have comes from God. Comes from God. Comes from God. That's part of humility. For me, and this is still hard for me to say, but I'm going to say it, I am a gifted communicator. I have to remind myself, I'm a gifted writer and a gifted teacher. And how can I say that? Because enough people have told me that I finally believe it. And especially Arlene, my mentor, she has said, and I would write it in my journal, I am a gifted communicator because I would have to recite it to myself. But if I just stood up here and said, yeah, I am a gifted communicator. I have got it together. I've got my slides and I've got my handout and and everything's all together and I make good eye contact and I know how to project to the back of the room and I know how to get really quiet when it's time to be focused. If I did that, and didn't, if I thought it was just me, then God couldn't use me. Every gift that I have comes from God. I told God this morning, if you don't help me, I can't stand up today. If you don't help me, I can't even get out of the bed. If you don't help me, I can't say one word. If you don't help me, I'm going to fall off the stage, which a couple times it's been kind of, <laughs> you've probably seen me getting kind of close to that line. That's why that tape is there. <laughs> But every gift you have comes from God. You can't dance without his gifting. Brian can't draw. Pastor Tom can't lead. Every gift comes from God, and we have to acknowledge that. So if you have a gift, which the Bible says we all have gifts, it's not you, but it's God working through you. It's Holy Spirit empowering you. Paul says he was called to preach according to the grace of God given to him. It just wasn't him. Be thankful. Carrie Newhoff once again says, Gratitude fosters humility because it moves you out of the role of the star in your story. You're not the star in the story. God is through you. The third step is to be vulnerable. What this means is share. Thank you your faults with others. For me, I am vulnerable quite a lot because I'm fighting this pride. And there's a quote, it's a pastor, I think he's in Eastern North Carolina, his name is Jonathan Pakluda. And he said, if humility is the goal, then humiliation is the path. If you wanna be humble, you've gotta be willing to humiliate yourself. You have to go to your friend and say, 
This is the sin I'm struggling with today. You have to confess your faults one to another and pray for one another, James 5, 16, so that you may be healed. That's hard stuff. I hate prayer ministry. I'll just say it. <laughs> I've been through a lot of prayer ministry, and I hate it because I don't want to confess my sins to anybody. I want to keep them private. But if we want to be humble, we have to be vulnerable and honest with people. And God makes me be humble. He makes me share things about myself that I don't enjoy sharing because he wants to keep me in my place. The next step is to be focused on others. C.S. Lewis says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So being humble is not being, what is it? Um, I can't think of the words. I'm being humble. It's not just being quiet like a mouse and being gentle and never offending anybody or ruffling any feathers, just being really sweet. That's not humility. It's being focused on others. It's serving others. It's th and this is hard for me. It's thinking about others is more important. Now, here's an example. When you see someone with a turn signal on, it means you help them, even if you're in a hurry. When I, I took three trips into Virginia speaking this year, and I am too sweet to drive in Washington, D.C. traffic. I am too sweet to drive because I couldn't cut people off. And my niece had never seen the Capitol, so we decided to drive through the Capitol in 5 o'clock, you know, traffic. She had never seen the White House. And I lived in D.C. before Brian and I got married, so I wasn't afraid to drive through. And I had my GPS. But when I had on my turn signal to try to get over, nobody let me over. So if you're going to consider others as more important, you help them. If you see a turn signal, help somebody. If somebody is struggling in a parking lot with their cart, you offer to help them. If someone falls down, you go and say, can I help you? I know we have a lot of chaplains in our congregation that will stop at wrecks to see how they can help. My daughter Hannah saw a wreck in front of her apartment this weekend. She took water and a Rice Krispie treat to someone. She probably had to get out of her jammy pants to do that. But it's being focused on others. It's pausing in our day-to-day -to, -day to send a text that says, I'm thinking of you. To make a phone call. To send flowers. The next step is to be empty-handed. Okay, this is where the rubber meets the road. Now, remember that I said in Philippians, this church, they were having problems getting along. He wanted them to have one mind and one purpose and to get along. For me, being empty-handed means being like Jesus. It's laying down my rights. And especially when it comes to disagreements, laying down my right to be right, laying down my right to be heard, laying down my right for justice, laying down my right to make my point. It's laying down your rights. Now, I'll tell you, whenever I have gone to have a Matthew 18 meeting with someone, which was where you're working through a difference, <laughs> there was this one time a few years ago, I prayed all the way there. I laid down everything. I went in empty-handed. I humbled myself. I just, I went in empty-handed. The woman I m met with, she did not pray the same prayer. That woman steamrolled me. She just rolled right over me. She made her point. She let me have it. She chewed me out. And you know, it said Jesus, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter. I went empty-handed. Now, sometimes you'll go in empty-handed and you'll get steamrolled. But we lay down our rights. Jesus laid aside his privileges. We lay down our rights. That was tough stuff. I remember telling Pastor Tom, I got steamrolled. I'm sweet. She got me. Okay. We want to be a servant. 
1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So we serve. We serve. We serve people. And the last step is to be low. That's what being humble means. For me, this means that I put God in his proper place. And I know that in Jesus Christ, I'm a saint. I'm sanctified. I'm a daughter. I'm set apart. I'm holy and I'm righteous. But when I am putting myself in my proper place, I imagine that I am just a little peon gnat made of dust and breath. And I imagine God on his throne, ginormous and huge and holy and righteous. And I see the difference between the two. And that is what I call humility. I'm not thinking little of myself. I'm looking at myself as I really am in comparison to God. I am putting myself in my place putting myself in my proper place in comparison to God, which is low. It is low. He's the creator of the universe. In comparison, even though we know we're children and loved and special and gifted and valuable, in comparison, we're, we're not much. That is humility. It is seeing who God is. He must increase, I must decrease. In our own estimations, we need to make God bigger and ourselves smaller. Here's a quote. I don't know where it came from. The demand to humble himself, oneself, excuse me, does not mean that one should make oneself lower than one actually is. Rather, one should know how lowly one really is. Humility is to know how lowly we really are before God. It's to know our place. I don't have a conclusion written out, so I'm just going to pray. Thank you, Lord. So we have a couple of songs of worship that put us in our proper place before God in humility, acknowledging who he is and who we are. And I want to invite you, I have a couple different invitations. First of all, I want you to think about what you hold in your hands, that God has been just nudging you to lay aside. It might be a relationship with a person. It might be the security of a certain job. It might be an area where you're struggling and he just wants you to give it to him. That grandchild that you worry about every night, you're holding on to that. He wants you to turn it over. What about your pride? Is there an area where you're trying to hold on to your reputation and your pride and what people think of you when God is calling you to lay that down and speak the truth and serve Him? What are you holding on to? What's in your hands today that God has been nudging you to just surrender? Surrender is not a popular word among Christians. Surrender is hard. But we have an example of one who surrendered everything for us. In response, we can give him that entertainment that he's saying we need to lay down. We can give him that donation. We can give him our time. We can give him our reputation. We can sacrifice and spend time in his word. We can give him those things because he will give us the grace to hand them over. We can give him our worry and our fear and our anxiety. 
we can give them the depression we've struggled with. So my first invitation is if there is something you need to surrender, and even if it's just to surrender yourself once again, I invite you to do that. Now you can be free to do that any way you want to, but for me, the most powerful place to do that is in a low position. You embody humility. You make yourself low. So I invite you by your seat on the floor at the altar to come and get low. My second invitation is if you don't know this Jesus that I have talked about today who left everything just for you, I want to invite you to come up. I would love to pray with you. If you have questions, if you want to know more, we can get some people that can talk to you today. But Jesus gave all for you because he wants to be your friend. He wants to help you live a life that's full of joy and peace. So I invite you to come. So as we, I want to ask you to stand up and join us in worship. Stay focused a little bit longer. I know it's almost lunchtime and it's easy to slip out the door, but I don't want you to miss this opportunity to respond to what Jesus did for you. He left everything for you. And he wants you to surrender in humility your life and what you're holding on to him. So Jesus, right now we invite you to come. We just say, Jesus, we are nothing. Compared to you, we are nothing. But you lowered yourself to where we were so that we could know you. Today we choose to acknowledge your greatness how awesome you are, how you deserve everything. We pray that you would increase and we would decrease. And we give you honor and glory. We make ourselves glow and we make you great because you are great and worthy of praise. And I just ask for each one today that you would touch hearts and pierce hearts, change attitudes, transform lives in Jesus' name. Amen.